you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, we're going to look at one verse in particular this morning. I'll read that here in just a minute, uh, and then we'll, we'll look at the broader context of the book of Jeremiah together. Let me give you a, a, an aim of where we're going before we pray again for the preaching of God's Word this morning. Here's our aim. This is, this is our focus this morning. Despite our provoking rebellion and serious sin wound, the unusual love of God in Christ compels us to repent and believe. Despite our provoking rebellion and serious sin wound, the unusual love of God in Christ compels us to repent and believe. That's where we're headed this morning in Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Let me pray, and then we'll look at the text together. God, we do pray that you would open our eyes this morning, that we would see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray that your gospel would come not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, one verse, we'll read that, and then we'll look at it more carefully, carefully together. The Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Well, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of preaching one verse sermons. Uh, I put that in the same category as being given uh, dozens of chapters to try to preach in one sermon. I, I, I want to land somewhere in between uh, when I'm given assignments. Especially when that one verse is surrounded by context of an entire Old Testament prophetic book of 52 chapters, covering approximately 40 years of Judah's history. So I'll do my best to summarize the setting in Jeremiah's day so that as we drill into Jeremiah 31.3, we have some context of exactly what's going on. Shortly after the civil war between Israel, Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom, the country's divided. Israel stays in the north, Judah forms in the south. The Assyrians come and they conquer the northern kingdom around 721, 722 BC, taking many captives with them, leaving the two tribes that make up the southern kingdom, Judah, by itself. About a hundred years after the northern kingdom is conquered, Jeremiah comes onto the scene, the prophet. A prophet to this southern kingdom that remains. And Jeremiah was prophesied, 
or excuse me, he, he begins to prophesy in 626 BC. And this calling on his life spans the life of five kings. Josiah, probably the most well-known of those, is the king when Jeremiah comes onto the scene. And then following him are four consecutive bad kings. They don't lead God's people in the way that they ought to lead. They return to idolatry. And despite years of idolatry leading up to the reign of Josiah, Josiah sought to reform Judah by calling God's people to rid themselves of their idols and to, re- to return to adherence to the book of the law. Jeremiah, however, testifies that this attempted reform ultimately fails as the following four kings, again, I mentioned they were not good kings, lead the people to resume their unfaithful, idolatrous ways. That's the context that Jeremiah finds himself in. Jeremiah says in chapter two of this this book, he says, thus says the Lord, verse five, what injustice did your fathers find in me? This is God speaking to the people of Israel that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. It is against repeated idolatry that Jeremiah continually and consistently calls the people to repentance. And these calls of repentance are accompanied by strong warning of judgment that will come. This pending judgment would soon come at the hands of the God-ordained Babylonians. Yes, I said that correctly. The God-ordained Babylonians. And though the Babylonians would be God's instrument of correction for Judah, they too would soon face the judgment of the Almighty God when the Persians under Cyrus the Great would come and destroy their short reign on the globe. Well, I want to give you a simple outline that fits with that setting that we've kind of laid out in Jeremiah's day. Here's the simplified, excuse me, simple, man, I can't get it out, simplified outline of Jeremiah. The first 29 chapters, there's going to be overlap so it doesn't cut nicely like this, but as, as simple as we could put it, is the judgment of Judah. And then Chapters 30 through 33, where we find our text today, is the promise of restoration. And then following chapter 33, 34 through 52, lay out the fall of Judah or the fall of Jerusalem in particular. Again, that's an oversimplified outline. There's overlaps between sections. You're going to find promises uh, of restoration sprinkled throughout the book, even in this uh, section that we'll be in today where these promises are really magnified. We still hear these uh, warnings of judgment. So there's overlap for sure. As you may have noticed, our text is nestled right in the middle of the most comforting part of the book, the promise of restoration. That's where we find ourselves today. And yet, despite God's promise of restoration, I want us just to look at two texts in chapters 30 and then 32, where God uses Jeremiah to speak to the people of Judah. Ultimately, Jeremiah's prophecy is twofold. 
He charges Judah of arousing God's anger by their determination to worship other gods. They rouse God's anger. And then the second, he warns that if they don't stop, that certain judgment is coming. That as long as they remain in faithless idolatry, judgment will come. Of course, our repentance or lack thereof always stands between us and God's justice, which is the very plea Jeremiah is making with Judah. Let's look at those two texts that I mentioned. In the most encouraging portion of this prophetic book, Jeremiah lays out for us at least two indictments on God's people that ought to catch our attention. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 30 through 34, says this, indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth. For the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath from the day that they built it, even to this day, so that it should be removed from before my face because of all the evil of the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, he says for the third time. They, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned their back to me and not their face. Though I taught them, teaching again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction, but they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. Did you hear the indictment God declares to Judah? They've committed only evil since their youth. Their actions have only provoked God's anger. The whole city, since the day it began, from the first brick that was laid, they were provoking God's wrath. And even up until that very day that Jeremiah writes, they continue to provoke God. The city will be removed from God's face, he says, and that everyone's guilty from top to bottom, kings, leaders, priests, prophets, men, and every, and every inhabitant. And despite being taught, they turn their backs on God. They've been unwilling to listen to God and they fill God's house with detestable things. The evil repeatedly committed is only always detestable in the sight of God. Listen to me, these words that Jeremiah speaks, it's bad news, it's not good. That's not the description that you want God to give of you. But I want you to see they not only provoked God to anger, but I want you to see the serious wound of sin that they've given to themselves. In Jeremiah chapter 30, if we go back a chapter from 31, we'll see in verses 12 through 15, it says, for thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable and your injury is serious. There is no one to plead your cause, 
No healing for your sore, no recovery for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the punishment of a cruel one, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. I have done these things to you. You hear again the language that God gave to Jeremiah to speak to the people of his day. Your wound is incurable. Your injury is serious. There is no one to plead your cause, no healing for your sore, no recovery possible. You have been forgotten. The punishment will be cruel. Your iniquity is great. Your sins are numerous. Your cries are in vain. Your pain is incurable. Again, this is not good news. This is not the kind of thing that you want your God speaking to you. Yet, this is where the people of Judah find themselves. They've committed evil, idolatrous acts against God and have received a serious wound called sin. And it's more serious than they had ever supposed. I think now would be a good time to say that we can easily insert ourselves into the storyline of Judah. We find ourselves like them. There's no glossing over the words of these indictments because of this incessant idolatry in the face of God's love, there is a coming justified wrath that is bearing down on the people of Judah. And like Judah in their day, the same is true of us. During my sabbatical, I was able to spend some good time in Jeremiah. You may remember that that was one of the two books I intended to spend a lot of time in, not knowing that I was gonna be assigned to preach one verse in Jeremiah when I returned. But one of the things I did was I listed all these descriptions given to our sin throughout the book. And I saw very early on in the book of Jeremiah that these list of sins was gonna be many. And so I began really in chapter three, zeroing in on this full list of sins. Listen to chapter three alone, the list of sins that Judah was guilty of toward God. Harlotry. They had violated their covenant. They had polluted themselves. They were full of wickedness, evil. They only went about their way. Adultery, deception, transgression, they scattered the favors of God. They disobeyed him. They were guilty of stubbornness. They dealt treacherously. They perverted God's word. They had forgotten the Lord and they were faithless. That's just one chapter. Jeremiah, there's 52, I'll write, remind you. The sins that they were guilty of were brazen. They were without shame. And the judgment that will accompany this time, this type of indicting behavior is unimaginable. It's unrelenting wrath. It is here that we turn to our text and begin to understand the great need 
for an unusual kind of love to invade the people of Judah. Something had to happen because they had totally abandoned God. So what I really want us to see this morning as we drill into Jeremiah 31.3 are three things. We want to see the unusual love of God for his people. And here's the three ways that we want to see it. We want to see the unusual appearance of God's love. We want to see the unusual extent of God's love. And we want to see the unusual beauty of God's love. So his appearance, the extent and his beauty. We'll begin with the unusual appearance of God's love. To grasp the full weight of what God says in Jeremiah 31, we have to keep in mind not only the the heinous sin that Judah was guilty of, but also these patient warnings that God continues to give the people of Judah. So we have this heinous sin, these patient warnings, but we should also remember the the rebellious nature that has been present since the first day that the city of Jerusalem was being built. Judah has been doing only evil in my sight from their youth, is what he says. So Jeremiah 31, If you will, Jeremiah 31, we'll begin in verse one. It says, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. At that time, at what time? What time is Jeremiah talking about? When he says, at that time, at the time when Judah had rejected God's appeals to return to him. We're talking about that time. At the time that they had consistently chosen idols before God, that's the time we're talking about. The time that they acted like harlots to God with the world, that's the time we're talking about. The time where they were polluting themselves with other gods. We're talking about the time that they were willing to pervert the truth of God to satisfy their own consciences. So when he says, At that time, we're talking about the time where they were indulging in every form of wickedness known to man. At the time that they were at their worst in their relationship with God. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. God says that when we're at our worst. Total rebellion, God-hating selves. It's at that time. Romans chapter five gives us a, a, a window into how that's not just Old Testament, but how that bleeds over into the New Testament days. A similar sentiment is mentioned in Romans chapter five, verse six. He says, for while we were still helpless at the right time. So there's this timing of God. For while we were still helpless at the right time, what happens? Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will hardly die for the righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. And you know verse eight well, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The time God demonstrates his love is while we are helpless, ungodly sinners. Verse two in Jeremiah chapter 31 says, thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when it went to find its rest. God still has grace for us. He still provides rest for us. How does God show us his grace? When we're in all out rebellion, when we've turned our backs on God, when we're guilty of every form of wickedness, how does God show grace to us? Well, that's where we pick up in Jeremiah 31, three. It says, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, he appears. How does God show grace to us? He appears, he shows up. He doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't leave. He doesn't just let us run rampant, but he shows up. He comes, he appears, he invades our world, a world where we have attempted to systematically eliminate him, a world where we have attempted to replace him with idols in our hearts. Jesus enters in when we don't want him. Try as we may to ignore his existence, try as we may to reject his love, Jesus enters in. He appears with a saving love to deliver us from an incurable wound which we have inflicted ourselves with. Titus 3, Paul talks about this. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But what's the next verse say? But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared... He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He appears. So when we turn our back on God, the way that he shows us grace and love is he appears. He shows up. God mercifully appears in the person of Jesus to save us from our enslavement to sin. But I want you to see what the next line says in the text. The Lord appeared to him, that's the people of Judah, from afar. Let's get this. Make no mistake, God's appearance is no little thing. Sure, he's omnipotent, he can show up, excuse me, he's omniscient, he can show up anywhere, anytime he's omnipotent too, but he's omniscient, he can show up anywhere, anytime. He knows all things. He's omnipresent. It's easy for him to be anywhere he needs to be. But listen to me, this appearing is no little thing. It was not a short distance that he came to save us. Jesus comes from the heights of heaven and he stoops low to provide to us his salvation. Philippians chapter two tells us about this condescension, this from afar that Jesus travels. When it says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's a far distance from divine to human that Jesus travels. It's a far distance from being God to taking on the form of a bondservant that Jesus travels. It is a far distance from the glorious communion of the triune God to the humiliating death on the cross that Jesus travels. He appears from afar, but that is exactly the distance that Jesus traveled to love you with his redeeming love. And to think that we have the utter audacity to spurn such love with our pompous, selfish egos is outlandish that Jesus would appear in this manner and we act like it's of little value. Yet we do and God still comes. He doesn't stop. At the time of our most rebellious, evil acts of wickedness, Jesus miraculously and lovingly appears to us from the furthest distance imaginable to save us from ourselves. See, Jesus' love, God's love, is an unusual appearance. It's not normal. People don't usually make that kind of effort to save people who hate them. But God does. But it's not just an unusual appearance of God's love that I want us to see. I want us to see the unusual extent of God's love. Look with me again in Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. As if God's appearance wasn't enough, he speaks to us such sweet words. He says, I have loved meaning the whole time that we behaved so poorly toward him, his love was never wavering. It didn't wane. It wasn't questionable. It was certain. It was true. It was definite. It was real. God has loved us all along. Despite our sinfulness, the love of God persists. God's love is not contingent upon us. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people in verse one. And despite the overwhelming amount of our sin in each individual heart represented in this room, God tells us again, Romans five, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's the kind of God that loves us. That's the extent of God's love, regardless of the amount of sin, his grace is more. His love bleeds through. God's grace is greater than our sin. The extent of God's love is beyond the degree of our ability to sin against him. But God's love is not just unusual in its limitless degree, but it's also unusual in its limitless length. It's an everlasting love. God's love is everlasting. God's love is eternal, and as Matt shared last week, the triune God is love, and he's eternally so. 
God's love is eternal because God is eternal. And the extent of Jesus' love is both limitless, there's no bounds to it in degree and in length, as far as we can possibly imagine into eternity past. Here's creation. Maybe I should start on this side since y'all are looking this way. Here's creation. And as far back as we can think into eternity past beyond creation, God loved us before creation ever began. And as far as we can possibly imagine into the future, Christ's return, ushered into glory, he loves us. That's the extent, point in both directions. That's the extent of God's love for us. But I want you to see a third thing in Jeremiah 3, not just the unusual appearance of God's love, not just the unusual extent of God's love, but I really want us to see this morning the unusual beauty of God's love, the unusual beauty of God's love. God's love to us in and through Christ has an undeniable beauty. He says, therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. I have drawn you in. God's love has an indescribable appeal and a luring dynamic, an all-inspiring attractiveness. The love of God draws us in. Every believer in this room would have to admit that we did not seek Jesus out. But rather by God's grace, Jesus suddenly becomes lovely to us. He didn't change. He didn't just become more lovely one day and then you decided to follow him. He was always altogether lovely. We just didn't see it. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Yet God draws us to himself. How does this unusual drawing happen? We see it says, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness, but how does it happen? First, like many other doctrines in scripture, there is a mystery to God's effectual love. What we can say with certainty is God does draw men to himself. As a matter of fact, the only way to God is to be drawn by him. John chapter six, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. I want to make a clarification as we talk about this unusual beauty of God's love. The Bible does not teach that God's drawing cannot be resisted. It can for a period of time, but that this resistance that we may put up, that we see the people of Judah put up in Jeremiah's day, it will ultimately be overcome by this God who appears, by this God who has more grace than we have sin. Our ability to resist will ultimately be overcome. God's love is effectual, signaling that God's intentions will have their intended effect on a person's life. We cannot thwart the will of God to save us. 
And like Saul of Tarsus, who was hell-bent on destroying the early church, persecuting the Christians, God meets him on the road to Damascus with an unusual and beautiful love. Like Paul, we were God-haters, running full tilt in the opposite direction, attempting to get as far from God as we possibly could. But by God's divine mercy, we have found ourselves enveloped in the gracious love of God. And though it's mysterious, God's effectual love is not hidden from us. It's not hidden from us. He tells us that he has drawn us with loving kindness. The way that God draws us is with his loving kindness. We can see and experience the love of God, excuse me, the love of God in Christ. Jesus is the visible love of God to us. The appearing that God does is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The grace that is greater than the sin that we're guilty of is Jesus Christ. And this loving kindness that allows us to be drawn into the love of God is Jesus Christ. Loving kindness is God's covenant love, which has already been mentioned multiple times in today's service. His promise-keeping love. God made a covenant, and he will keep it. He made a promise, and he will fulfill it. God's love is seen most clearly through Jesus. Jesus' life, life without sin, life full of compassion, life full of preaching truth. but it's also seen in his crucifixion, his death, his willingness to humbly be crucified on a cross. And this loving kindness is seen in the resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's loving kindness to us. God keeps his promises to graciously graciously save his people through Jesus. Is the love of God not clear to you today? I'll be honest. There are days, there are moments where we're all tempted to doubt the love of God, to forget the distance which he traveled to appear. We downplay the extent of God's love for us. We forget that he's a promise-keeping God. So I plead with you, when those days come, When those moments arrive, open up your word as dry as it may seem and read the gospels. Consider Jesus' words again. Behold his acts of compassion. Look at his interactions with the people of his day. See him being crucified for your sins. Be enamored afresh with the reality of his resurrection. 
and be reminded that Jesus is altogether lovely, that he possesses an unusual covenant love that draws us to himself so that we might receive the salvation that is afforded us in Christ. It's just one little verse. But in Jeremiah 31.3, we see his unusual appearance, the unusual extent of his love and the unusual beauty, drawing power that Jeremiah holds out for us. And the reason that he holds it out to the people of Judah and again to us today is so that we may choose the easier path, not the one that Judah chose. There's always an easier path than provoking the anger of God and striking ourselves with an incurable curse of sin. There's an easier path than facing the judgment of God. Oh, the pain that we would save ourselves from, the heartache that we would avoid if only we would repent and believe that the love of God has for us in Christ is our rest, is our salvation. If we wanted to seek to apply Jeremiah 31, three this morning, I think it would be simple. I think we would do what Jeremiah was appealing to the people of Judah to do in his day. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's not a simplified version. I'm not oversimplifying it. That's exactly what he was calling the people of Judah to in his day. Repentance is not just changing our ways. Many people throughout history have faked repentance by exhibiting some form of sorrow and trying to reform their behavior for a season. False exhibitions of sorrow and reformed behavior, they never last. Not when they're man-made, not when they're man-powered. There has to be genuine change in who sits on the throne of your heart. Repentance is not just a spoken resolve, but a brokenness displayed over past sins and a replacement of desires in the heart and mind of the individual, or in Jeremiah's case, the people of Judah. Remember earlier when I said I'd compiled a list of all the sins that we could discover in Jeremiah, and I rattled off a list from one chapter, Jeremiah chapter three. Well, in that same chapter, Jeremiah chapter three, verse 22 says this, behold, we come to you. Jeremiah is speaking for the people of Judah. He's saying, this is what you should say. Behold, we come to you, you being God, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the hills are a deception, a tumult on the mountain, surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But the shameful thing has consumed the labor of our fathers since our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our humiliation cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day. 
and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. According to Jeremiah chapter three, repentance looks like this. Coming to God. He's appeared to us. He's shown us the extent of his love. He's drawn us with his covenant love. We must come to him. Recognizing his position that he is the Lord our God. Admitting that we've been deceived and distracted. The hills are a deception, a tumult on the mountains. And recognizing God's salvation. God is the salvation of Israel. Jeremiah tells the people. And we should be ashamed and humiliated of our sin. Let our humiliation cover us. We have sinned, Jeremiah says. Acknowledging our offense is against the Lord our God. I love it in, in Psalm 51 when David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And we must listen to the voice of God. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. We must listen to the voice of God. That's what repentance looks like. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not acting sorrowful for a while. It's coming to God, undone, pleading for his mercy and salvation. And then we must believe. Believe in Jeremiah 31, 3, the promise that God extends to us, that it's true. That the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Believe God's love has appeared to us in Christ. Believe in the extent of God's love is limitless. And believe God's loving kindness will draw us to himself. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us. Father, you would help us this morning to acknowledge our sinfulness. Father, I pray that we would not continue in our sin. Father, I pray that we would hear the warnings of Jeremiah, that we would understand the weightiness of coming judgment for those who don't repent and believe. And Father, I pray that we would believe the truth of Jeremiah 31.3, that you have appeared from afar saying that you have loved us with an everlasting love and yet you will draw us with your loving kindness. Father, I pray that you would grant that kind of faith to those who are here today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.